The following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Now we're going to turn to the part of our service where we look at the Bible, and in a minute, Doug is going to come and preach to us, which will be brilliant. And uh, before that happens, it'd be good to read. So it's Luke chapter 12 today, which, if you've got a Bible on your seats, it is page number 1044. Uh, 1044. Chapter 12, and it's the little number 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Well, the full piano has a break over the summer. Uh, I've been delighted to be back in the morning service again. And uh, I've been tasked with taking us through this passage in God's Word this morning. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been looking through a series uh, in uh, the parables in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we've seen so far the parables of the sower uh, and of the Good Samaritan. And uh, today it's the turn of the parable of the rich fool. We're going to look at it in a second, but before we do that, why don't I pray? Father God, thank you so much that you give us your word and that you speak to us. And as we were singing earlier, we pray that as we uh, gather around uh, to hear your uh, voice now, that we would humble our hearts and tremble at your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that we've really enjoyed about uh, St. Michael's over the years is being part of a home group. And uh, during our home group social a couple of weeks ago, while we were uh, playing a game of Obama Llama, that's a highly recommended board game, we got discussing what is the best board game? What's your favorite board game? And it got me thinking back to a game I used to play with my cousin when I was a, a lad, and we visited my uh, grandma's house. Um, it's called Game of Life. Hopefully here it is. You can see it on screen. The rules are pretty simple. You work your way around the board, and depending on what squares you land on and which cards you draw, it's decided what happens over the course of your life. Do you go to university or not? What job do you get? Do you become a doctor or a plumber or a teacher? Do you get married? Do you have children or pets? And the aim of the game is to get to the end of the board, which represents retirement, with more money than everyone else. You get a bonus if you retire first, because winning in life is retiring early, isn't it? And your assets are totted up to work out the winner. And it got me thinking about a question that I think this passage this morning poses. And the question is this. How rich do you want to be when you reach the end of your life? 
How rich do you want to be when you die? When your assets are totted up at the end of things, how much do you want to have counted towards you? Perhaps it's not something you've thought about much, or consciously at least, but it's a question we're confronted with in this story from the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. If you've still got your Bibles open, do look back to the start of chapter 12 so that we can look through a bit of background. And if you have a handout, you'll see the first heading is the setting. This is it. So we can see from verse 1 that a crowd of many thousands had gathered to hear Jesus speak. And he's such a draw that people are trampling on one another in order to get a piece of the action. Um, They're pushing and shoving. Elbows are coming out all over the place. It's like trying to get on a London tube during rush hour. And that's because people can't wait to get a glimpse of Jesus, to hear snippets of his teaching. It's a huge crowd fizzing with energy. And amidst all that, in verse 1, Jesus starts talking to his disciples. And we get the privilege of listening in to what he's saying to them. And it's pretty serious spiritual stuff. We can see that in verses 1 to 11. Just to give you a few highlights, in in verse 2, if you look down, he's telling them that nothing concealed will not be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. Nothing's hidden from God. In verses 8 to 9, he's explaining the difference between acknowledging and disowning him. It's a big one and it's a serious one. In verse 11, he's teaching them how they should act when they're being persecuted for their faith. He's basically in the middle of a pretty intense discipleship explored course when suddenly in verse 13 a voice pipes up from the crowd with something completely different this is a man who's been listening in and he wants Jesus to shut up about all spiritual stuff and deal with his real issue he wants his his wretched brother wretched's not in the text I've put that in there but you feel it's implied he wants his wretched brother to divide the inheritance with him And Jesus' reply in verse 14 is pretty testy. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And you might think this testiness is basically because it's a bit of an inappropriate question. I mean, I don't expect anyone to interrupt me today while I'm giving my sermon and and pipe up and say, oh, Doug, do you know what time the Red Lion starts serving lunch today? Um, or when I'm giving my children a stern talking to. I'd be pretty nonplussed if one of them interrupted me to tell me that my flies were undone. But that's the kind of grinding change of pace we have here, and it doesn't feel quite right. However, this isn't quite as inappropriate a question as it might at first seem. Firstly, it's actually a good case in the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament law, for asking someone like Jesus to rule on this kind of thing. In fact, there's specific guidance in the law of Moses for how to divide inheritance when it's disputed. You can find that in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. We're not going to go there for want of time. But they're there. And it hints that he's not necessarily asking the wrong guy. Secondly, this man had probably been listening to Jesus, been struck by his teaching on on justice and righteousness, And he's probably thinking, this this righteous teacher who cares about justice, he'll rule in my favour. We don't know many of the details. He obviously um, wants his brother to divide some kind of inheritance with him. That that might be that he wants his share early, like in the parable of the prodigal son, or more likely the father's passed away. And as many of us will know, where there's a will, there's a family squabbling over it. And this man just wants what's rightfully his In fact, he almost certainly has a good case 
Otherwise, he wouldn't come along and air it publicly. He'd just go and find a corrupt official to deal with it behind closed doors. And so having dealt with the setting, we come to Jesus' response to the man's question. And we're going to see that the testy nature of Jesus' response is less because the question is inappropriate and more because the question reveals something much deeper about the questioner. As is so often the case, Jesus goes far deeper into the matters of the heart. He sees what is hidden. He sees the motivations, the issues behind the questions we bring him. And that's what he does here. Because we see in verse 15 that this man is driven less by a desire for justice and more by a desire for money. Jesus recognizes the greed behind the question when he says in verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. The man who comes to Jesus in verse 15 is driven first and foremost by a desire for more. And note how in verse 15, when Jesus starts speaking and giving them a warning, it's not directed simply at him, but at them, the disciples and those listening. Jesus wants us all to be on our guard against a desire to acquire more because he knows that whoever we are, Jew or Gentile, Christian or non-Christian, rich or poor, whatever temperament or background we have, we're all prone to greed. The philosopher Voltaire got it right when he said, when it comes to money, all men are of the same religion. It's not so much the desire for money as the desire for more. That word greed in verse 15, it's, it's really covetousness. It's looking over your shoulder at what your neighbor has and thinking, yeah, I'd be a bit happier if I had a bit more of that. Someone said the providing man with sufficient pay, adequate living quarters, and medical care, they won't solve his basic problem for the simple reason that he desires more. He wants his neighbor's pay as well as his own, his neighbor's house, and his wife too. In short, he wants all he can get. Uh, Paul Getty, an oil tycoon and, and one-time richest man in the, in the States, was once asked in an interview how much money a man needs to be happy. His reply? I guess it's just a little bit more than you've got. I think if you were to, if you were to offer me as much money as I, I uh, wanted, I'll, I'll name the amount. The only condition is that uh, all those around me get twice as much as the amount I name. I don't know how many people would actually go for that. Would you? We need to be on our guard against greed, against covetousness. And to make the point, Jesus tells a parable. We were promised a parable. Here it is. It's the parable of the rich fool. We have a man who's done really well for himself. We can see that in verse 16. He's some kind of farmer. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He's not an unscrupulous businessman. There's no hint that he's been extorting people or behaving badly. His land has just produced bountifully, and he's gathering a tremendous and unexpected harvest. He was rich already, but this has really given him a lot to play with. I mean, this is some serious cash, and he doesn't know what to do. In verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He flicks through the financial pages of the Sunday papers for a few ideas for what he can invest in 
and how can he, he can make his uh, how can he, he can ensure the financial security of his future. Lots of really sound advice. And eventually he decides to tear down his barns in verse 18. And uh, like Boris Johnson's slightly strange campaign slogan, build back better. Uh, bigger barns, bigger storage. This is going to source him out for the rest of his life. He can just chill. Um, he can retire early. Buy that chateau in the south of France he's been dreaming of and, and spend winters there. He can dig out the basement of his house and, uh, and build a, a wine cellar to, to store all the wine that he's about to stock up on. Uh, he'll bring in a personal chef to help him make fine dining the norm rather than an occasional treat, uh, and, of course, to throw him regular dinner parties. He'll join two golf clubs, starting to, get, starting to get together a wardrobe for the life of holidays and socialising he's about to embark on. And he's, as he's standing out on the veranda, drink in hand, it is uh, the end of his retirement party, the last people are just leaving, uh, on the table next to him are the brochures of the, the skiing and the safari holidays he's about to go on. Suddenly he gets a pain in his chest. The ambulance arrives and takes him away, but he's dead before he makes it to a hospital. And God says to him in verse 20, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then he'll get what you've prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. It's not that early death will be the fate of anyone like this rich man, clearly not. But that frustration has rings of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? The writer of Ecclesiastes, let me jog your memory, he undertook great projects, built houses, planted vineyards, amassed silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. He acquired a harem and denied himself nothing he desired. He refused himself no pleasure. And his conclusion? When he surveyed all he had, his hands had done, what he had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. The writer of Ecclesiastes was a God-fearing man. There's no hint that the, uh, the, the man in this um, passage today wasn't exactly the same, a good chap who believed in God. But his folly is not that he didn't believe in God. It's that he takes all the, these decisions with absolutely no reference to God. It's not so much what he does. Jesus isn't criticising sound financial planning. He's not saying we shouldn't have a pension. Looking after money sensibly is commended in the Bible. But it's why he does what he does. Did you notice he, he only has himself at heart? We can see that by all of the uh, first-person pronouns that he uses in the passage, like <clears throat> I and my. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build big ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And then he starts a conversation with himself. That's how self-absorbed he is. He's only really thinking about himself. Verse 19, I'll say to myself, you absolute lad, again, not in the text, I've put in that in there, but it's something of the tone, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's been said that our attitude to money is a great indicator of where we put our faith. Our attitude to money is a great indicator of where we put our faith. And the rich fool in the parable is putting all his faith in the here and now, himself and his money. 
The money can certainly bring pleasure, the ability to eat and drink fabulously well, uh, enjoy many of the physical things in life. Uh, and we find that too, don't we? A serious attraction uh, of acquiring greater wealth is the ability to live a more pleasurable lifestyle. So that like the writer in Ecclesiastes, we, we need not refuse our heart's pleasure or deny ourselves things that we desire. In fact, we spend time daydreaming about it, don't we? The, the, the cousin that I mentioned uh, at the start of the talk, um, he used to get teased by his older sisters because when he was younger, the only book that he would read was the Argos catalogue. And he loved sitting there and thinking about how great it would be to get... Um, well, I actually don't really know what he wanted to get. But uh, anyway, he loved it. And I have to confess, spending a bit of time in the Argos catalogue myself as a youngster. Because it's fun browsing through shops, isn't it? Think of how great it would be to have something new, the new and shiny thing. And shopping is a recreational activity, probably one of the most popular in Britain. Because acquiring stuff, it can bring quite the buzz at the time. But it doesn't last. I saw a programme the other night on TV called uh, Millionaire Hoarders. If you haven't seen it, it's five out of ten at most. But it seemed to involve experts going into huge houses, mansions, castles, that were absolutely round with stuff. And their task was to find lost treasures to sell. And it was extraordinary, and actually quite sad, to see just how much stuff these people had acquired over the years, the decades... Because most of it now was just junk that no one wanted, and there was the odd piece that was going to be sold by a random TV presenter. We hope that money will bring us pleasure and satisfy our desires, but actually it doesn't last. The pleasure fades, and like the rich fool, we can't take things with us when we die. Of course, the other thing we hope money can bring us is comfort and a sense of security. The ability to live without the worry of how we're going to make ends meet, pay the mortgage, put food on the table, repair the car when it breaks down, go on next year's holiday. But trusting in money to give us security, it might give us a bit of security for a time. But again, it can't last. You see, we think of ourselves like being in a, in a bubble, a bubble of wealth and possessions that can protect us against the way the world can buffet us and threaten us the bills that are coming in, things that we'd love to be able to buy just to make life that little bit easier. So we work hard to make the bubble bigger. <laughs> and it's better. But it isn't quite enough. If only it would just be a bit bigger. We'll work a bit harder and make this bubble bigger. <laughs> and we're almost there, but let's just go a little bit more. We aren't quite there. <laughs> Until one day... The bubble bursts. And God says, you fool. Now we'll get what you've prepared for yourself. That wealth we build up over time, it won't last. We can't take it with us when we die. And it can't protect us on the day of judgment when the, when the bubble bursts. So we, in affluent southwest London of all places, we need to be on our guard against greed, against covetousness, spending time and energy daydreaming about more, more money, more stuff, hoping it will bring us pleasure and security. But what does it look like to be on your guard against greed? Well, we get the lesson in verse 21. Rather than storing up things for ourselves, 
We need to be rich towards God. That's the, the, the kind of phrase that has me scratching my head. What does that actually mean? One of the things I love about the Christian faith is that we have a leader who's he's done all the asks he, he asks of us. He's not some kind of general Melchior char- character. Do you remember him, the Stephen Fry character from Blackadder Goes Forth, the sort of First World War general who, who sort of sits behind enemy lines, sends everyone else off to the front while he's reclining in comfort. No, Jesus gives us the pattern for this piece of teaching through his own life and actions. Spelt out really clearly in the New Testament. Um, let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Or Philippians 2 tells us that though Jesus was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped and held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. When we consider verse 21 and apply it to Jesus, we have someone who did more than just not store up wealth. He, he gave it up for us so that we could be in a relationship with God. And that relationship has to be the starting point of being rich towards him. The next section in Luke 12 Uh, goes on to show how large a part trusting God plays in this relationship. Uh, We won't read it now, but you may know it already. He talks about the birds of the air, and he points out how they have food to eat without worrying about it. He points to the flowers of the field, who are clothed in incredible splendor, despite not worrying about it. And Jesus says that if that's true of the birds of the air and the grass of the field, how much more is it true for you that you need not worry about it. We don't need to set our hearts on them. That's the conclusion. If you look down at verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat and drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. A hallmark of the Christian life should be dependence on God. Uh, William MacDonald, in his incredibly challenging book, Real Discipleship, says this, Clever men of the world set aside abundant reserves for the future. The Christian is called to a life of dependence on God. If he lays up treasures on earth, how is he different from the world and its ways? And it's probably true for many of us that it's easier to trust in money that we can see than in God whom we can't. But that same God has called us to a life of trust. He wants us to let go of our grip on possessions, just like Jesus was prepared to give up his riches. He wants us to approach him with open hands, servants, servants who first and foremost desire to, to know God and build a relationship with him. And servants who labour for others so that they might know God and and have a relationship with him. And servants who've been given things by their master in order to serve him. See, the rich fool's folly involved hoarding wealth and seeing the generosity that God had lavished on him as his. 
But all we have is a gift from God, and he wants us to share his gifts. I'm not an engineer, but I understand that um, engineers differentiate between closed and open systems. A closed system, an open system rather, uh, is one where uh, you put something in and something comes out. A closed system has inputs but no outputs. One way of illustrating this has been to look at two bodies of water in the Middle East. You've got, on the one hand, the Dead Sea, where water can go in but not out. The water's too salty. It, uh, you can't drink it. And it sustains no marine life. It's a closed system. Conversely, the Sea of Galilee has water flowing in one end and out the other. It's an open system, and it's teeming with life. That's one way of looking at our possessions. They're a gift from God. And if we see ourselves as their final destination, that's the potential that they have for life. What proportion of what we own is God's and what is ours? Is it uh, 90% ours and 10% God's, that idea of tithing? Um, Are we more generous? Are we thinking of it like 50-50 or maybe even, I don't know, 70-30? I think the Bible's answer is that it's 100% God's. And while God certainly wants us to use his provision to provide for ourselves, in many cases he also wants us to be given gifts to help serve him by being generous to others in the face of the physical and the spiritual needs of the world. And there are huge physical needs in the world. Certainly we were praying for some of them at the prayer meeting a few weeks ago, for example, that the huge famine um, in uh, Ethiopia disastrous, or the financial difficulty of the the cost of living crisis here in the UK, was be generous to the huge physical needs in a world where about 720 million people live on $2 a day or less. He also calls us to serve him by being generous in the face of the spiritual needs of the world, remembering that for our sake, Jesus became poor, giving, giving up the riches of heaven, so that we can have the spiritual blessings of that relationship with God. And he wants us to work to share that spiritual blessing with others. The spiritual needs are big. In my lifetime, the proportion of people in the UK who identify as a Christian has halved, going from two-thirds to one-thirds of the population. But in 2019, only around 850,000 people attended Church of England churches on a regular basis, and less than 5% attended any kind of church on a regular basis. Worldwide, there are 1.5 billion people whose first language is one where the the Bible is not translated in its entirety into that language. And about 150 million people in the world speak a language with absolutely no part of the Bible translated so that they can read it. There's huge spiritual need. And this gives us the opportunity to be rich towards God, to invest in something that's lasting, Wouldn't it be great to to meet someone in the new creation who was there, thanks in part, to a way that we had shared God's gifts? Be on your guard against greed. Be rich towards God. As we close, I wanted to tell the story of, of John Lang. He took over the family construction business near the start of the 20th century, made a huge success of it, turned it into an incredibly prosperous enterprise. In 1922, still 56 years before he died, he gave away almost 40% of his shareholding in the business to a charitable foundation. 
He pioneered ideas for the well-being of his employees, such as paid holidays, things that will have cost the company but improved the life of his workers. And he led a simple lifestyle himself. Apparently, when he died, his current account at his bank totaled just £379. Not because he'd been bad at using money, but because he'd been so generous. He was rich towards God. How rich do you want to be when you die? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the overwhelming generosity uh, that you lavish on us. Thank you for Jesus who gave up all the riches of heaven to become poor so that we might be rich. And Lord, we pray that we in turn would be rich towards you, that we wouldn't store up things for ourselves, but would have great joy in sharing your gifts with the world and being rich towards them. In Jesus' name, amen.